Argument, a podcast for speech language pathologists, audiologists, and the scientists who support them. A podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them. A podcast by two people who love thinking and lively debate, but hate beating around the bush and baseless claims. Well, welcome back to everybody who's hung out with us for the duration. Hopefully, if you listen to the last two episodes, episode six and seven. As you probably know, we are inspired by Ms. Whistleblown, who on Instagram has an account where she charges after our field in sort of a loving heart, you know, love or tough love kind of way, and especially after Asha. And uh, what we decided is to change topics and move into this area where we talk about our field and Asha with a little bit more of a microscope. Um, If you guys listen, you know that episode six was about the history of how we got here. Episode seven was, what are the issues people are really obsessed about? And episode eight is about solutions. And so as you can imagine, solutions don't have a lot of history to talk about. Solutions don't have a lot of sound bites, but people pretty much probably know what the solutions are. Uh, You know, obviously the solution to uh, not affording something in your household is to cut somewhere and make more money. It's just not that easy. You can describe exactly what you have to do but it's not easy to do. So easier said than done is probably you guys are going to say to yourself, things you're going to think to yourself and say to yourself over and over and over again. And, but what about, but what about, but what we're asking you to do is allow yourself the process of imagining a world where it happens. And here's why we said a couple times that the people who made decisions 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago from private practice to therapy caps, et cetera, have all had to face the realities of their decisions and who's facing it more? We are, and probably our patients. So if we don't do this process now, we may end up allowing history to repeat itself or if someone's doing a podcast talking about what we're talking about and nothing has changed. So I'm going to remind everybody of what the four general areas were that we talked about. And then I'm going to talk about the way I view some of the solutions. Meredith is going to talk about it her way. And we're going to talk about something at the very end that we think everyone can do, can do, will do, different issue. So subtopic number one was training and expertise. Another subtopic was respect perceived value of of the profession. We talked about how money flows. And of course, bias and our myopic profession as it relates to diversity. So in terms of solutions, I decided to break mine up by the job title of the general area of work. Uh, So I separated researchers from clinicians, from students, from administrators, and of course there's ASHA. So when I start with research, it's because that's the primary area that I have spent time in. While I have done clinical work and I have done administrative, and obviously I've been a student, I think of myself as a scientist, a researcher. And I think that a big problem in research is that we are trained to focus on doing things that move us forward as a career person more than as a profession. As an example is when I pivoted from the world of thinking about doing researcher-initiated stuff 
I go to the NIH and say, I have this idea and I spent all this time thinking about it and putting it together and look how great I am and I could change the world. They're going to give me money. And it's whatever idea I thought would work with my collaborators and I. I thought it was going to be the area that would be funded, the area that would push science forward. But I didn't think about the things that would help clinicians per se. I did mention patients, but you know we don't have to do research that can immediately impact patients because the idea is science for science sake. You know, discovery of penicillin wasn't because I might have a headache one day. It's because they were just doing science and this happened to work for patients. Woohoo! And there is a lot of that. But we have talked about the fact that respect for our profession, the way money flows is supposed to be backed up by research evidence. And when research evidence can't tell people why we should have 25 visits for this kind of swallowing problems versus 10 visits and what the dosing should be and why this therapy should work on a larger scale than we have other than I just I just have seen success, I've just seen success, then that does us a disservice as a profession, including researchers. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that researchers need to recognize that we have more power in this game than any other constituent, meaning for every 50 clinicians who might have something to say and band together to try to make a change, I, as a researcher with my CV and my recognition, can say a few things to ASHA in a particular way that gets their attention way more. And it's not because I have better training. It's because I keep being given opportunities to do it so I get better at it. But it's not because I deserve it. It's not because I'm so much better. And in fact, I'm certainly, I still have to go back to clinicians to get the issues to bring it back. So I end up being a liaison and I'm not sure that I deserve it any more than a clinician who should be given the voice to say it. So I have to take that and recognize that to whom much is given, much is required. And to the extent that I can channel, and you know, it's funny, a lot of, at least in the swallowing world and some out the swallowing world said, oh my God, you've totally made a niche for yourself, like really training the clinicians and just really being there with them and really moving in the CEU world. Good for you. It's so non-traditional. And it's almost like, you know, you left us. And when I left academia, I was viewed as somebody who just wasn't really worth being interacted with by the researchers so much anymore. Cause I don't know, I'm not in that world anymore. I'm not talking about, Oh, it's so good to get this on my CV. Cause Asha asked me to be in a committee about so-and-so, Hey, this committee is meant to do something, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't happen, it lives on my CV more. That's a bigger uh, ripple effect than whether this com- committee ever does anything. So uh, that's, that's a research issue as well as the fact that, When I teach, I have a responsibility to not be obsessed with whether the students will like me and be obsessed with whether the patients will benefit from having a clinician who was taught by me. Yeah, and those are definitely easier said than done things big time, you know, being like, you know what, your course evals might be awful for a few years while you figure this out, but, you know, it's going to have a great, much greater impact than you just like ushering these students right on through and they're super happy because everything's super, you know, easy and all that type of stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, because people with PhDs are often invited to sit on committees, I think in part because of tradition, because ASHA has a history of being very university dominated, also because of availability to a certain extent, like it's easier. Flexibility of schedule. Yeah, they have more schedule flexibility, so it's literally easier for them. Um, But in addition to taking on the responsibility of making sure that if you show up at the table, you get something done that really benefits our field, um, I think it's also there's also a responsibility to look around at who all's at the table and say something. 
say something over and over and over again if you look around the table and everyone sitting next to you is a white female with a PhD, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I've tried to say many times, and I mostly have been met with, like, we've asked the SLPs already, but keep trying, you know? And you might even say, I would like, I accepted this position so I can give it up for a clinician. I am here to walk away from the seat um, because I, if we don't, maybe not this round because we have things to do, maybe by the next round, I want to see X more clinicians. And if I don't, I'm going to make a stink and I'm going to get more people on there with me because people unfortunately respond to consequence. Um, so, so anyway, uh, moving on to clinicians, I would say that when clinicians complain about productivity, I understand that they've moved into a system that's hard to escape. But if you continue to pick up everyone and bill until money runs out and you don't collect data to support why they should or should not be in your practice, you are seeing patients with no future benefit. You may already be seeing patients where there's currently no benefit, meaning there's literally nothing more you can do, one. Two, you don't really understand what their problem is, but you're going to see them and do whatever you can. So you're not trained. Or three, they actually don't have a problem that you should be managing. Any of those things are reasons technically to not deal with that patient. But we all know that that's not going to happen. But the very least you can do is collect data that supports that. So you learn for yourself about who should be seen, who shouldn't be seen. Know what data outcomes are, what criteria are for getting better incorporate the patient into that. Simply collect some data so you can actually start to change things. I'm not saying don't see the patients because that's that's like me just saying, I'm not going to teach today. I mean, I would never do that. I don't just not show up to class, even if I think the class is bullshit and the students are annoying. I'm not going to just not show up, even if it's something a class I shouldn't be teaching, I'm not totally qualified for, and I do just some extra work for. I can think of scenarios that parallel clinical things where I shouldn't be teaching, or maybe I shouldn't be the one writing this paper or on this grant as a collaborator, but I do it anyway. So I'm not going to act all high and mighty and say productivity demands are different for you than me. But at the very least, what I can do is I can try to change the course. I can try to manipulate the system in some way. Use what you're doing to impact what you may end up doing in the future. Collect data and show, you know, we wasted money on all these patients who were normal. And all these other patients who I should be picking up aren't being picked up and they kept bouncing back with a problem and our universe, our institution is paying for that. But if you can't use those kinds of data to change a system, then you're literally part of the problem. Right. I think, I think school-based SLPs in some ways, oh, they're going to crucify me for saying this. In some ways, it's easier for them to say no, because I, that actually is the advice I would give a school-based SLP. I wouldn't say, oh, just you know, you've got the kids on your caseload or they're asking you to take on these kids, just take them, just treat them, just collect data. I actually do think that school-based SLPs in particular should just plain say no more often. Um, mm -hmm. And the risk is that your boss will get mad at you. The biggest mm -hmm. risk is that you could get fired. But, mm -hmm. and I understand that a lot of people cannot take certain risks and I respect that. But for the people who can take risks, they should be. They really mm -hmm. just should be. It, there's nothing wrong with having, you know, with, with leaving a job, you know, with basically putting your foot down in a way that results in you ending up choosing to leave a job. 
I did not know that, but um, I have experienced that because my, my CF was in the school system and I had so many kids. It's why I went and got a PhD because I, I wasn't interested enough in taking up the cross. <laughs> I was interested in leaving the institution and never coming back in the capacity of a clinician in school. So I guess I did it in a different way. Different way. So let's move to students. Let's acknowledge that maybe there are a lot of students who don't want to admit that they don't belong in this program, but they're not going to quit on their own. Um, I have something controversial to say, and I have something to say that is not so controversial. The not so controversial part is uh, stop complaining. And if a class is hard, and you don't get a good grade, consider that maybe you didn't work hard enough, not that the clinician, that not that the pay, the, sorry, not that the professor or the instructor is just a, a hard ass. Consider that you are the common denominator and consider that when you go and complain that you actually had to work hard and that that professor gets told that the students are complaining, that you then ruin things for other people who actually want to learn and want that. But I've always wondered if it's in this, the power of the student to say, you know what, I don't think I can do this. Why is it that we have to continue in this dance where we can't have the conversation as people who specialize in this area? So I'm worried about being ableist. So I don't say anything, but I do wonder if I could support them better and patients better if I was allowed to have this conversation without being reported for having the conversation. It, it kind of overlaps with the whole concept of um, <laughs> like, the students that funnel into our programs and us, us just ushering folks through with A's rather than giving them genuine feedback related to, you know, various places within or outside of our field where they would be happy and the realities of what it'll, you know, be like as an SLP and stuff like that. You know, students should know that faculty in a lot of ways aren't allowed to do much more then shuffle you right on through. And mm -hmm. so I think it, it also sometimes um, presents, it, 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 I, I think it, it presents the wrong image to students when every single one of their peers in the room is getting an A and nobody's talking about <laughs> anything at all other than just running folks through these multiple choice tests and ending with an A at the end and being done with it. Like it's, yeah. And it's alarming when you have a student who opens up to you and says, you know, I used to be a pre-med major and then I was a nursing major and then I was so-and-so major, but I couldn't hack it. And this is the only program that will accommodate me. It makes you go, whoa. So do I say something like we're the only, I mean, I don't know how to take that. This is a good thing because you're actually capable and we have found a way to bring out your best skills and you're really actually awesome. Or does that mean you actually don't belong perhaps in college? Perhaps you don't belong in college, but we're the only program that felt like we couldn't say no. I don't know which one it is, but I'm not allowed to have the conversation. So I just left academia. <laughs> I was like, bye. It just didn't make sense anymore for me to, to deal with those things. Yeah, that's an incredibly difficult conversation to have for the exact reasons you bring up, because it's going slightly in the wrong direction, it's going to end up being very ableist and very damaging to people who could otherwise exactly. be successful if you don't entertain systems of support. But then there's also no pathway of saying, hey, 
I'm not so sure you need this, actually. Like, let's try it this way, you know, because mm-hmm. there's yeah no path for coaching students through that. I hope that the newest students, but I'm not so sure this is true, are savvier consumers of information than past generations. But from what I'm seeing, I'm not so sure they are. <laughs> as, mm-hmm. an, as a student, you need to be aware that people are constantly going to be trying to grab your hand and pull you in various directions in ways that are beneficial to them, um, not necessarily to you. And you need to start to be able to read through the lines of the messages within our field in all the different contexts. Don't consume all your information from one location. Don't consume all your information from social media, which is gonna end up having a very specific slant. And just be aware that only a fraction of what you were being told (laughs) is 100% accurate. I would say maybe nothing Mm -hmm. is ever 100% accurate. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And you just need to start paying attention to that. When When something is, you know, for example, when something is marketed as EBP, that's a marketing word. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't it, yeah. it doesn't mean anything at all. So you mm-hmm. just need to start being um, aware of that because you will be drowning in information once you graduate in our field with people grabbing your hands, trying to pull you a million different directions, and you're going to have to start figuring out a path forward. And I don't know of any places or people right now who are going to fix that for you. What you said about EBP reminded me of a bottle of water I bought that said it was sodium-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, vegan, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that means nothing because it's water. But somebody's like, yes, all the things I want to avoid in one product. Don't be that person. Be the person who goes, uh, yeah, it's water. It, I'm worried about, is it mercury-free? I'm worried about, is it, you know, uh, what else is in it? I'm worried about the pollution. But throwing on all those labels doesn't mean anything. Right. So- you're being marketed to constantly by everybody. Uh-huh. And you just need to be aware of that. Yeah. Administrators. Administrators. All right. The worst thing about administrators to me is that they take a job and they just pick up the agendas from the people before them. And it's the way we've always done it is what they're after. Now, administrators often apply for jobs saying they want to change systems, build programs, innovate, and then they get there and they just eat what the meal was before them. Maybe they put in the microwave a little longer. Maybe they put a little less, but it's the same goddamn meal. And they have to package what they've done as this big feat. And ultimately, they don't change. And I think that's a big problem in places like ASHA. People are like, oh, I'm going to go to ASHA and I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be a dean and be a department chair. I'm going to um, run, be the co-chair uh, presenter for so-and-so. And you go to ASHA or you go to, you know, your school systems, you, your, your DOR, your rehab manager, they're all doing this. No one changes everything, anything. And to me, that is important too, because each individual clinician can certainly leave all their jobs. But maybe they wouldn't have to if they could work with you toward a goal. And sometimes administrators get into a position where they realize it's harder to do. It's easier said than done, which is the way this is we're going to keep coming to. And they blame the positions they were in before for not understanding. All these clinicians are just complaining. But now that I'm here, I see how hard it is. Why are you blaming them? You were there. You took that job for that reason. Bring them in. Don't get mad at them and make them the enemy and look up to the people who hired you to talk down about the clinicians. Yeah, they don't get it, right? They don't get it. When you get here, you get it. And then you're like, oh my God, they're so dumb. No, no, no. You were dumb too. Wouldn't it be amazing if somebody reached over to you and said, 
hey, I know you're complaining about me as a DOR, but come do a day in the life of. Tell me what you think. And maybe you guys could work on a solution together. Uh, but when you just take take agendas, you don't realize what you're stepping into. And you often blame the oppressed who you used to be because you don't want to go back there. But you also are tired of hearing it. And you're frustrated because you took this job and thought you were going to make a difference. Right. There's a lot of um, messaging that I see like in our culture right now related to um, protecting your energy and ignoring the haters and being like immune to criticism, yeah. which I actually yeah. think is the exact opposite message of what people need to hear. You need mm-hmm. to hear that you need to pay attention to criticism, take it mm-hmm. in, you know, take people around you, bring them in to problem solve alongside you and don't let criticism crush your spirit. But, oh my gosh, muting criticism is not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like we said before, people who raise issues can be separated from people who just complain. And like I said, say women are such bitches. Okay. That's not going to help us. That's not going to help us. And that is criticism you can hear and push to the side, but there's criticism you can hear and say, okay, you're raising an issue. Let's discuss that. So yeah, have a filter and don't take things personally. So what I've said a lot, and I'm going to stop talking because I I have a feeling that given who you are, you're going to be more integrative in your approach. (laughs) I don't know about that, Um, but I can pick up with where you are. So within administrators and leadership and stuff like that, my favorite thing that you said that I think this is, is the most important to pay attention to is that all the feedback that people are giving you is relevant. Like, unfortunately, I'm sorry, but it's relevant. If somebody comes and tells me that I'm doing a piss poor job of running the informed SLP, I need to pay attention to it. I need to pay attention to it and I need to fix it. And the more you try to push away people's criticisms as irrelevant or nonsensical, or they just don't know, all it's going to do is compound the issue. Mm -hmm. It's just going to compound the issue. So People in leadership positions need to be aware of this. Any leadership position. Your job is to be brave enough to hear the criticism without turning on the people who are giving it to you. It's the price you pay for the position you said you wanted. It's the price you pay for the money and or power that you now have that you said you wanted. That's just the price you pay. And then another thing related to this that was brought up in one of the Instagram dumpster fires recently that was just so, so spot on is this. When SLPs look at people in leadership positions, they usually task them with being the ones to make the change. And while we definitely should hold people who are in leadership positions responsible for that, for sure, we also need to recognize that in some ways, people in leadership roles are the wrong place to look for change, and here's why. People in leadership roles often have the biggest reasons to not rock the boat. They're often going to be the least motivated to mess with the system that's now rewarding them with money and or power. So for example, like the lead SLP or the SPED administrator at your workplace, they oftentimes have less wiggle room to disrupt the system than the 40 SLPs they supervise. Why? Because while they're closer to the source of the problems and likely understand the source of the problems a little bit better, they're also closer to the source of the problems. It's the hand that feeds them now. So 
people often have less power in certain leadership roles because there are harsher consequences for disrupting the person above you's revenue stream because they are just barely above you, they are right above you, and they'll look to you to not do that. I've noticed this pattern regularly in people who climb the ladder of you know leadership and stuff that sometimes when they climb, they become less likely to do something about broken systems than they were before they had climbed the ladder because suddenly they have so much more to lose. So the point for SLPs is, yes, hold people up the food chain responsible because they need to be held responsible, but also be aware that they're sometimes just not the best place to look to find change makers. SLPs collectively have far, far more power than they realize, and they're actually the ones, as a group, really holding almost all the power. But there's, there's a category of folks that you didn't mention that I also think is important, business owners in our field. Mm-hmm. And they're relevant yeah. to me just because I spend a lot of time around them and because I am one. And so I'm constantly paying attention to what it's like to be a business owner in our field. I, I, my personal opinion is that there's two categories of people whose voices aren't adequately present within leadership at the state, national, or international level. And if they were, it would fix a lot of things. And that's clinicians and business owners. But business owners need to um, take risks in the exact same way that scientists do. So the message that that we started with to scientists is, you know, this isn't just about what's going to earn you tenure. You've got to pay attention to your role in shaping our field. Business owners need to do the same thing. This isn't just about revenue. This isn't just about how can I protect my revenue and grow my revenue. That's going to be the message that business coaches give you. That's going to be the message that fellow entrepreneurs give you. But ultimately, you have to also look at yourself and saying, am I, through my actions, paying attention to how to make the field better? Or am I paying attention to how to make sure that I make money all the way up through retirement? And then after that, I don't give a shit what happens, you know? I will say that I know business owners who've had difficulty getting a seat at some tables, but oh, well, they need to keep trying, you know? And so if you try to get on a committee at ASHA, for example, and don't make it in, the response shouldn't be, they don't want me. No, they need you and you need to keep trying and you need to talk to people who can help get you a seat at the table. Because, uh, you know, one of the main issues that we talked about too was, you know, perceived value and marketing and how do people understand what we do? How do people understand um, what we offer? Business owners are master marketers. Their business wouldn't be surviving if they weren't. If they weren't good at convincing people of some shit, they would not be business owners, right? And so you need to get those people at the table because they are going to be much savvier marketers. And our field has a major marketing problem when it comes to not only state and national organizations demonstrating their value to SLPs, but us demonstrating our value to the greater world. So business people, get your seat at the table. I don't care if it impacts your revenue. (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, I think, yeah, there's something you said that's, that made me go, wow, I, okay, on one hand, business owners are tainted with the cultural brush that I mentioned that Dr. Threats brought up about Anyone who makes money must have a bad, we should be suspicious of them about what their meaning is. But we've already established students want A's. 
clinicians want patients for productivity and not to, to not lose their job. They want time. Faculty member want CV accolades and business owners want money. I mean, everybody wants something. It's just a question of what your what your bottom line really is. If you have a regular salary, you don't have to do anything differently for it. Then you want time. If you if you can control your time however you want, but your money isn't guaranteed, you want money. Like it's just a question of what your bottom line is. But uh, the other thing that I was thinking is, you know, a, a great way to approach this would be to say, what is everybody's skill that they bring, and what is everybody's biggest um, Achilles heel. And give one issue, maybe it's hearing aids, maybe it's instrumentation, maybe it's, uh, you know, whatever, maybe it's uh, having too much in your caseload. And we say, here's where students bring some stuff. Their boy, are they ever energetic and objective about what they're going to be able to do for these kids? No one else has that but them. They don't realize they can't fix them as well as once they learn all the problems. You know, clinicians, they know how to do this. They know how to get the job done. They get the job done under difficult constraints. Researchers, they know how to look at these data. They know what questions to ask and they know how to execute and get the world to listen. Administrators, they know how to get the superintendent and -and so-and-so to actually show up and get this person out of the closet. And business owners, they know how to market the fuck out of their product. But they also have all downfalls. And if we could just get one person from each of these areas in the room on a particular issue and give a good example of how they all sort of had to look to the left and say, here's what I think your problem is and here's how I attack it. Then you look to the right and say, here's what I think your problem is, here's how I attack it, bring it together. Boy, wouldn't that be effective? That is it. Exactly. Exactly what needs done. We have the ingredients in our field to change things a lot faster than we have been, but we're afraid to use them or we're just not used to using them. So we keep on cooking the same bland, safe dinner year after year instead. Putting, to a certain extent, putting our profession above your personal interests. Like everybody's going to have to do a little bit of that. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. not going to be easy, but everybody's going to have to do a little bit of that. So we talked about categories of people, scientists, business owners, leadership and administration, um, students, clinicians. Let's go back and talk about each of our four topics again, just to make sure we've covered everything. Um, So starting with training and expertise, we talked about how our CSD departments are often the place where if it's too hard somewhere else in some other department, the students are told to come to us. And that's both something that we can be proud of because it shows that we're the ones who are most capable of working with students to find their strengths and a path forward for them. But that's also a major problem for our field because the work we do can't be the easy work. When it's framed as the easy stuff to do, it has real world implications for our graduates. And we have to identify ways in which we can advocate for people as well as know what it is we need out of our graduating clinicians and solidify those training standards. We have to know what our field needs in clinicians, which is for damn sure not things like, um, you know, the bias GRE scores or the ability to write an application essay that who knows what the heck faculty are trying to find in those. But we need to be a lot more clear about what we're looking for and holding students who are about to become SLPs responsible for meeting those expectations and thriving and really doing well. Our clients deserve standards that we need to work harder to properly identify so that we can start to raise the bar. And the other thing is the attrition. When you go to medical school and law school, we know 
that they're kicking people out because that's a business school. That's the culture engineering that people aren't look to your left, look to your right. Somebody's not going to be here is the culture. Can you imagine saying that as CSD intro, everybody would run out crying and they would, you would actually get called on the carpet by your Dean for saying that because everybody wouldn't like that people were crying. Why can't we suggest that we want the cream of the crop? Why can't we do that? Well, because culturally, Everyone gets in and nobody leaves. <laughs> you know what I mean? What about for practicing SLPs? That's a you know a constant concern that came up in the problems section related to like continuing ed and stuff. Like, what courses am I supposed to take? What am I supposed to do? What like what do I need to learn? Where do I go for good information? Where you know how do I? I was about to say, how do I know when I've learned enough? We both know the answer to that one, but. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know that there is a good solution in our field right now. I actually think that's a huge problem in our field, and I don't have a good solution for it yet. I think I think clinicians are drowning and people marketing things to them. So what they've got on their plate is a thousand different courses they could be taking. They have no idea what to do, and there's nobody mm-hmm. genuinely helping them decide what to do. So they're willy-nilly picking things and trying things and frankly wasting a lot of their time here and there, you know, mm-hmm. taking a 3-hour course that ends up being crap and then finding a 3-hour course that's incredible, you know. I don't have a good solution for for that yet. Well, maybe it's going back to what we talked about before which is how do we stop the bleeding in our field, which is stop adding new areas to our field. Maybe stop and consider learning the basics in what you are supposed to already know, because I have talked, I thought it was just swallowing. I've talked to folks in voice. I've talked to folks in child language and the experts are saying, when I give these courses and I say, let's just do a quick review, that basic knowledge is not there. And a lot of that stuff is free or low cost. So rather than trying to make yourself advanced, maybe you actually can't be advanced because you are, don't get the foundational principles. Maybe that's an important foundation or a concept to, that's a solution that we can actually do. Right. If you're picking up a CSD textbook that's meant for undergraduate and master's students and there's still chunks of it that you're like, ooh, and <laughs> I, didn't, I don't really remember any of this, that maybe that's the problem. Um, what about perceived value? What are some of the solutions to increasing our perceived value? For, first of all, I think it's important to, recognize that this is going to be a state, national, international problem, as well as an individual problem. So this Mm -hmm. is a problem for everybody to be tackling. And to me, honestly, it's a marketing problem. And I would like, I personally would like to see big time effort put toward this, like really honing in on what are we, what do we offer? What what are we bringing to the table for people and identifying that and then making sure people know about it businesses on average spend 10 to 15 percent of their revenue on marketing. A lot of businesses spend more like 25 to 30 percent of their revenue on marketing. So imagine that of all the money that's coming in, 30 percent of it is right back out the door purely for marketing, purely for telling people this is what we are, this is what we do, this is what we offer, this is what we can provide for you. I feel like our field is in a bad enough situation that in the very near future, we need to be looking at something like that. We need to be looking at something that approximates a massive, massive push toward helping people understand what SLPs can offer. 
My response to that is somewhere between this section and the last, which is our bias and myopic profession that focuses on white females. But I think that, you know, when you go to a particular country that's homogeneous compared to like Canada and the United States, right? You feel like you are engrossed in that culture because in Finland, they do a lot of the same things, especially if they're in an extreme climate. The United States is a good example of a place where there are enough different people here and there are enough different climates that U.S. culture is going to be broader than Jamaica's, right? Where people have a similar background, the same talk, speak a similar dialect, and the, cult, the climate itself is all tropical. So there's not going to be like skiing culture. You know what I'm saying? Jamaican bobsled team didn't do it in Jamaica, and they were phenomenal because what the heck? Jamaican bobsled team, right? So I would say that the, our field is suffering from the fact that we do a lot of things, but the only the filter through which the things we do that are so important still go through a white female's lens. So creativity is often stifled. A lot of the things that I do on social media, I get a lot of messages from people like, oh my God, you're such a trailblazer. You're so different. You're like, you're a disruptor. I've been told you're all the, I'm like, I'm just me out there in these streets being different from what you're used to. Most people, most black female SLPs aren't looking at me like, girl, you're so different. No, they're like, I love that you incorporated things we do or the way we would say it into it. They might not have the platform I have, but they get it and they see it. So I think creativity is stifled because people, we have a very conservative, prudish field in many ways. And I'm not saying it's a white woman's fault. I'm just saying that anytime there is just one view of something, it is very specific to that view and things that are outside, maybe they'd be looked at innovative as innovative, but they're still different. And when you talk about something as basic as communication and feeding, which everybody wants to do, nobody is saying, and I actually said this to Dr. Threats when we were talking, I said, if you look at somebody who uh, has, is an amputee, right? You know, they're, they're running the, the Olympics and they're having a full life, right? Versus somebody who cannot speak and has a peg tube. Which person do you think most people would like to be? Take me to the Olympics. Take me to like, let me still, I mean, there are people in wheelchairs who are have otherwise, maybe they would wish they weren't in wheelchair, but they're still communicating with their family. They're showing love. They're doing all these things and they're eating. We don't communicate the most human thing that people want. The thing that everyone go, oh God, I hate that. Right. And that's because we think it's assumed one and two, we don't know how to communicate to all people because we're used to the deconstructionist view of everything, which is what about the way they place their tongue when they said tea, who the fuck cares, but we care because we think that's functional communication. And maybe Puttaka would be fun. if It was like motherfucker, 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 which does get M T you know, it gets all the places. Maybe it would be more fun if that's because they're upset. Say, motherfucker, 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 instead for diadochokinesis. But I actually thought of that. I was like, ooh, let's do that. And they're like, we can't do that. I'm like, why not? I mean, I mean, what? People might get mad. It would work. <laughs> take a risk. Take a risk. Yeah. Yeah, we do not. We do not um, take very many risks at all. At all. What about money? What about money? All the things. Walk, take your money and take, stop giving up your money so fast. Money is power. Yeah. Money is power. Don't let it leave your wallet and then complain that, you know, you're not satisfied with the outcome. Make sure that you are satisfied with the outcome if it's going to leave your wallet. And if you're not, voice your complaint 
slash concern slash whatever issue, um, like you said, it's all relevant and maybe they're not going to agree, but maybe we need to start voicing our complaints differently than we have been. Because if you're just getting on the internet every December, November, December, January, and (laughs) running your mouth and, you know, bitching about stuff, how is it different? It's just like New Year's resolutions that nobody's going to follow up on. It's just the other part of the year. And the other thing is, so we're talking about us as professionals giving up our money, but let's talk about taking money. If we keep taking money for jobs that we say are pieces of shit, like a sniff where you get paid $95,000 as a student just coming out or a position in academia where you have complaints like we did about this is just not for me, but it's so easy to get these amazing fringe benefits. And my kid gets to go to school with 50% off if we stay in this town and they go to this school. And if you think of all the reasons, then you are actually, you're either going to change within that system or you're going to build something and risk perhaps not having a stable income, but also contributing to the field. It's not for everybody. I understand. But I would say there's probably five more percent of people who have traditional jobs who just needed to hear this and say, I'm, I'm feeding into the system by eating from the system. That's a really good message. I'm feeding into the system by eating from the system and not trying something slightly different. And also, you know, on the topic of money, you're never going to make more money if you don't figure out how money works in the first place. You need to start paying closer attention, asking more questions, asking where money comes from, where money goes to, so that you can be savvier with your money. And making suggestions for change as somebody who knows what it runs to what it is to run a household. Stop saying, well, let's just stop this. You have to understand it's a zero sum game. Yeah, every SLP has some money thing that they should spend some more time understanding better. Maybe it's insurance reimbursement. Maybe it's how money is allocated within states for school districts and SPED versus general ed. Maybe it's how businesses in our field are built. Maybe it's finding sources of money outside our field that most of our peers aren't tapping into because it's so much easier to always look inside our house than outside of it. Um, But just spend time asking questions. Spend time asking questions about money. It is always appropriate to talk about money. There's never really a good reason that questions about money should really ever be off the table, ever. And if someone won't give you explicit and clear answers about money, it's usually because they're hiding something from you in order to protect their own pockets. So basically, We can't make more money in our field until more of us understand money and how it flows so that we can better stand up for ourselves and our clients. Any other money things? Money things, no. But we can move on to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, bias, and our myopic profession. I already said something about creativity. It's actually what I was going to say, which is, Allowing people to contribute in ways that make, that enhance our field, even if it's not something you would do, let them have a voice, right? Let them have an opportunity to say something that's not mainstream. Don't shut them out. Don't sideline them. And also be sure that if you bring in diversity, be it on faculty or in your staff, or as students, it's important, it's imperative that you let them know why it would be good for them. 
and stop saying why it's good for you in the profession. They're not even in it yet. You're buying into a system where you want my pound of flesh because it makes your numbers better. I can feel that. So if this person was valuable to you, like a faculty member who's coming with a ton of grant money, all they do on these interviews is show you why you would thrive there, why we can hook you up with the best fMRI machines, why you can collaborate with this person. They sell the university to you because they want you to believe you belong there. They don't do that to diversity people because they don't know why. They often are just like, we just need the numbers or they might not believe it themselves. So it's hard to sell something to somebody when you don't know why you would want them. And if you can't figure that out, then just keep 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 the same people in until you can, because that might have been a highly qualified person who went to your school where they end up leaving the field and not to another school where they could have actually stayed and contributed. So make sure you're setting up an environment for people that allows them to show you all the things that they are bringing to the table and respects their differences. I actually was saying the opposite. Tell them why they're going to benefit by being in our field. If somebody enter, if somebody, if there's a student who you're trying to get more diversity, you go to X high school because they have more black and brown kids. And all you do is talk about how the field really needs them and patients could use them. What do they get out of it? Because if there is a equally, is there, if there's another field that can offer the same opportunities and they can basically make the same amount of money. It's a comparable field, but there's more representation. Why would they choose the whitest field to deal with shit? For what? So why you need to sell it to them. Why should they be here? I'm not so sure that that's an easy sell because of all of the problems. You know, because of all the problems, you're not going to make way more money with us you aren't necessarily going to have way more job satisfaction or flexibility or respect with us. We're asking you to jump onto a boat with some holes in it. But I'm talking about things that don't also apply to white people. So I'm going to say this again, which is if there are two comparable fields, right, where they, the salary is about the same, the work opportunities are about the same, et cetera, except one is far wider than the other. Why would they come here? Right. So if we can't articulate why they should, then maybe we shouldn't accept them to use them as guinea pigs while we figure out how to keep them. Maybe we should say this person is valuable to our field. Our department's not good, but our field deserves them. Let's say to them, you are so awesome. We're worried that our climate's going to cheat you of opportunity to take in all you have to offer. While we would love to accept you, you should also know there are these other programs where you would probably thrive better. And here's why I say that I've been asked all the time when I would go to Wisconsin and Iowa for faculty positions or my postdoc from white people. Oh, how is it going there? How are, is it? Are you liking it? I don't see you in Iowa. I don't see you in Wisconsin. It comes out of their mouth like a hello. And when I say, tell me what it is about white people that wouldn't work. Because what you're saying, you, no one ever says that about Hopkins and Baltimore. No one said that about Washington, D.C., they said it about Gainesville, Iowa, and Wisconsin. So, but they won't, what they won't say is, you won't be accepted because you're black. How is, how are you dealing with that? They'll just say, how's it going? I don't see you there. Now, no, now nobody there said, don't come here. Those are the people who are selling it to me. 
everyone else who's watching me go there says, girl, like, mm, I don't know. But all the people who are asking me to come, I have to see it for myself why I want to be there. I know there's something they can tell me, but they sell me the whole foolishness, which they know is going to be trouble. They should just come out of their mouth and say, look, you're going to have trouble here. It actually would be, I respect them more if they said, this is going to be rough. You're going to ha- work. You're not going to get invited to these things. Blah, blah, blah. They're going to assume that you're a doctor. I'm resistant. And this is the reality. Don't give me, we ha- we just, adv- we just hired a diversity person from hop from, from Baltimore. Maybe we can hook you guys to, to up so you can be friends. You're ferreting me out to the one black person. That's what they always do. Just tell me that I'm not going to get invited to your dinner parties when your racist grandparents are there because you don't want to be embarrassed. Just tell me. I already know what's happening. Right. Our field needs to be more honest and more ready to have those discussions so that we exactly. don't harm students by attempting to sugarcoat everything. Our field is very, very um, big on sugarcoating everything we force each other to like we watch people get punished when they don't sugarcoat things. And so it ends up if you're someone who's willing to not sugarcoat things and wants to consistently have hard discussions, it ends up being something where the constant social feedback that you're getting is that that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. So to have a field with that culture where you're trying to have open and honest discussions about, you know, like, race and you know what's in the best and truly within the best interest of our students like we might need to deal with the like sugarcoating aspect first i want to bring up a tangible solution on this topic that you were a part of that you might not even recognize with a solution um and no one asked you to act but you did and it completely changed everything which was just two or three days ago there was that post on slps uncensored about one of the many posts about a poor a sad not poor like financially poor but a very she presented to be very sad in her text about her dad who loves rush limbaugh and is so racist since well she didn't say racist but what do i do when someone in my family is so horrible and actually then went to post all the horrible things that rush limbaugh has said as part of sharing her dad's post i mean man when i read that stuff i was like i was having a good evening then i went on slps uncensored and read this and of course the comments were I'm so sorry you have to deal with this. I've divorced my family, that kind of thing. My question was very simple. I had two questions. One is, is your dad a racist? Two, is your dad a sexist? And then a simple yes or no will do. Her response was, honestly, I don't know. My response was, how could you not know if he sides and promotes these horrible things Do you have to say that Barack Obama is Barack the Magic Negro out of your mouth? Or do you just have to perpetuate it and laugh at it? I think they're about the same, right? That kind of thing. And I sent you the screenshot because we'd been talking about these issues about whiteness and the oblivious aspect of things. And we had just had this conversation, but I didn't expect for you to act. I expect you to respond to me like most white people who say, I'm so sorry you had to deal with this and then go back to you know your life and say, I hope she doesn't think I think that and wring your hands and wonder, should I do something? Shouldn't I? You immediately jumped on there and changed the whole direction of the conversation, which was to say, uh, hello, my dad is, a, my, I have racist in my family, I have sex in my family, and blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly her tone went from saying to me, 
what's your problem when I started this conversation, which was because I hadn't seen that. She was asking me, what's my problem? How dare I sort of like challenge her or ask her these questions and say, are you, how do you not know this person's a racist to, I understand your point, Meredith, and no, you're right and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly that it didn't end there. It also continued where you're like, no, 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 it's not my point. It was Ianessa point, Ianessa's point. I'm simply saying what she said and you're softening your tone to me, but saying, what's your problem to her? No, you're right. It's just that you opened a conversation. You're like, no, no, no. She opened the conversation. You need to check yourself and ask why when a black person asks you this, when you're triggering them with this content and asking them to sympathize with you, that it's a problem. But when I say the same thing and I even out my family, you're cool with it. And here's the thing that like many people commented, that thread went from, oh shit, what is going to happen? Who's getting blown up? Tragedy, everybody run to no, no, no. Let's focus on what just happened here. Let's just look at the behaviors of the, forget about the history. Look at that behavior change. And if I had done that, I would have been angry black woman. But when you did it, it was, no, she's not angry black woman. And I might be angry white woman. How about that? Maybe I'm that. <laughs> and to me, that is, that is a solution that had so many ripple effects with all the DMs I'm getting and how people are then continuing new conversations and data from other scholars are coming out. And it's not in a traditional sense in a classroom, but boy, I think it manifested in ways that neither you nor I thought would happen. And you know what, to this day, she probably doesn't even know we have a podcast where we talk about this. She probably just thinks you're a random person and I'm a random person. Yeah, yeah. She's like that random white lady jumped into the conversation exactly. and then everything exactly. started getting interesting. Those conversations are hard, but we do not get to back away from them. They take time, energy, and emotional labor, but avoiding digging in is cruel, <laughs> I mean, we have to summon the energy and do it because it's not anybody else's job. In our in our other example, they make assumptions, but it, it did give us a little bit of data and how people change their minds. Now, if I went on there, I would have been perceived the same way because I happen to have a company, depending on what she asked about, that sells, you know, knowledge and education, if you will. Uh, so I totally understand how sometimes you have to pick your battles, but do battle. Yeah. Anytime we name problems, but avoid stepping onto the battlefield to get involved in the solutions, we are the problem. We are the problem. Take the risk. It's, you know, I, maybe I don't know if you had more points, but it, I feel like this leads us to our point, which is what is something everyone can do? The thing everyone can do is really think about whether or not you want to pay those ASHA dues as a big one. Really? So what happens if one year there is a uh, windfall or is that landslide, windfall, whatever the word is, just like the uh, Robin Hood AMC, you know, GameStop thing where I was like, you know what? Fuck that. 50% of SLPs say, what are they going to get all of us? And 50% don't pay. The whole month of January comes and goes and you know, you can pay late, right? But everyone goes, what if we just don't pay till the 31st? What the fuck? And uh, and we will only pay on the 31st if, in fact, during the month of January, they act fast. What then would happen? Oh, January 2020, 2022 would be an interesting month, wouldn't it? Because, you know, you do have that month. And that would be an interesting thing to see 
the extent to which, well, first of all, they could listen to this right now and believe we'd never do it. They believe that we would never do it. But let's say 50% of paying SLPs said, we're not paying till the 31st and only, only if during, between now and then, or, or during that month, this, these kinds of things happen. Boy, they would, they would really want our money because that'd be 50% of that particular line item. And they have that spent already. Right now, they have that money spent. Right. Businesses have to be made to scramble like that to a certain extent. You know, like that I consumers need to hold people in positions of power with their feet to the fire. And it's not like the angry, disgruntled, you know, people who are complaining about things. Like we need to like take people's concerns seriously before people blow shit up (laughs) for no good reason and blow things up in the wrong way. You know what I mean? Like that's one of my biggest concerns too, is that I, I, I would like to see clinicians blow things up in a way that elicits change rather than in a way that self implodes our field. Exactly. It's like you want a concentrated direct explosion or implosion. Like, you know, when they get rid of a skyscraper right next to another skyscraper and the other one never gets touched, you're like, how the hell have humans figured this shit out? Right. I'm still trying to figure out how they figure out how to make skyscrapers. They're already getting rid of them in in front of my face. (laughs) You know what I mean? But um, I, yeah, and I'm not asking anybody to throw their body on a bomb here either, if we're going to keep with this analogy. But I do want people to know that if we all play a role in it, then we can have a controlled change. But either a lot of people have to take a small risk together at the same time, that's the grassroots, or it's what you said, a few people are going to go really bonkers and the control of what happens is not going to be very clear about whether or not just helps them or not. As an example, when Reagan died, a lot of Alzheimer's money went up. But you know what? There was a lot of aging research that got cut that was really important, really important research. And at the end of the day, they look back and go, wow, we we just gave a lot of, like birdsong was this big thing everybody was studying, birds and how their, uh, their things, well, I forget the word for bird larynxes, works, laryngees work. And there was a lot of basic speech stuff that just got the, you know, didn't get anything. And that area of research turned out to be important. Then they had to undo the birdsong stuff. Why the hell did it, is everything pendulum, you know, one or the other? So you're right. I think an important message is everybody taking a small calculated risk speaks volumes because the institutes can say, well, this is a groundswell. This isn't a couple of crazy people. Uh, go, like you and I <laughs> throwing our bodies on the ASHA bomb together. Ebony, Ebony and Ivory, you know, uh, just what are we doing? Exploding in perfect harmony. Uh, that's not what this is. This is a lot of people saying, no, actually, there's a, a tide change here. Yeah, we just can't ignore it because it is destroying our field. When the exact same problems come up year after year, and it's almost always the exact same complaint or set of three or four complaints like we identified in these episodes from tens of thousands of people, then those are problems that we need to pull, put all of our energy and dollars and creativity toward fixing and fast <laughs> before it gets worse. We as you know, faculty, SLPs, business owners, and people in leadership roles need to put the labor into learning more from each other so that we know we actually understand the problem, first of all, 
and then work to fix it. You know, no more November to January dumpster fires. (laughs) I know you all are sick of them. I'm sick of them. They're draining. Let's shift it now. And if you're unsure or worried or making excuses, also ask yourself of the problems that we brought up in these episodes, like value of our profession, for example, respect, money. Do you want to see those things get better? Do you want the change that we're all sitting here fantasizing about? Um, Because if so, let's find a path forward together because the path we've been on has not fixed it. (laughs) It has not fixed it. So ultimately, SLPs persistent and consistent issue raising of the same things over and over again tells us that we're now at the point where it's irresponsible to not try our hardest to put significant effort toward change. SLPs are screaming. They're screaming. And I'm concerned about what could happen if we don't start listening to them. And for folks in leadership roles who think the problems maybe are too big to change, like the mountain is too big to push, or if you think you are doing everything possible, then that needs to be explained to SLPs. That needs to be clearly and transparently explained to SLPs so that they can help. Because right now, SLPs, on average, I'm seeing basically just perceive everybody above them in leadership roles to be just plain not trying hard enough and just plain not listening. And that's horrible for our field. Because your feelings related to these episodes are going to end up driving what you in what you do. So you have to first be really highly aware of how they make you feel. And then once you, you know, identify that, like, what are the things that it makes you want to do? Like, what are some things that you could do? Identify or the- Or stop doing. Or stop doing. Yeah, do or stop doing. What are what are some of the changes you might want to make? Write those things down. Try to figure out, are these pro- things that are going to make the problems better or worse, unknown? Who do I need to consult with in order to make sense of, you know, whether or not I'm headed in the right direction? Um, and what will prevent you from doing these things? Like, you know, we've said this over and over again, and you said earlier, change comes with risk. Like there is no change without risk. And so scientists are going to have to put put a certain amount of risk into the situation. Business owners are going to have to recognize that it will literally, there will be things that may have the potential to drop their revenue. And they're going to have to be brave enough to just go with it. Um, students are going to have to be brave enough to say things to each other. Clinicians are going to have to be brave enough to push back on their bosses and push each other. Um, But with enough people being a little bit more cognizant of some of these issues, hopefully we can expect better and see better, Mm -hmm. see better within our lifetime rather than being like the history episode that somebody else covers like 40 years from now where they're like, once upon a time, people said these things, but then nothing ever really changed, so... Yeah, I love what you said about how do these episodes make you feel. And I'm assuming that if I listen to this, I'd be fired up. And there are going to be some people who feel afraid and some people who feel disillusioned or just indifferent. But you're right. Acknowledge that and then ask yourself why. If you feel indifferent and disillusioned, maybe you're somebody who's leaving the field, right? Maybe you're like, you know what? 
I don't even care. I'm leaving this field. Whereas there might be other people like me who's like, I'm not leaving the field, but I am an innovator. I'm a disruptor, as people say. So let's fucking do something, man. And somebody else is like, I'm just happy someone's talking about it. I'm just happy. But yeah, that's the next thing to do after this. And let us know how you feel on your on our Facebook page or message us. Our Facebook page, page is Evidence and Argument CSD. And you can message us via our website. You can message us separately on social media. But we just want to know how you feel after listening to these three episodes and tell us why. Perfect. All right. Looking forward to the conversation. Bye. Bye. Thank you.